Welcome to PR for Humans. I'm Mike Sargent, and I'm on a mission to help business leaders communicate more powerfully. Do you want to develop world-class media skills? Do you want to become a high-impact public speaker? Do you want a galvanizing business story that delivers your success? Then I can help. Visit sergeantleaders.com or prforhumans.com. Type Mike Sargent into Google. Find me. Find me and call me for media training, public speaking training, PR consulting, and leadership coaching. Anywhere in the world, I'd love to help you. My new book is PR for Humans, published April 2019. You can find it on Amazon. And please go now to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, rate and review this show. Thank you. Thank you. Share this podcast, share your stories, share your knowledge, stay human, and stay curious. Welcome to another edition of the show, and we're back in the PR for Humans studio in Soho, and I'm very excited to be here because we've just got a few weeks to go until the book is launched, so I'm feeling excited and very nervous about that. April the 18th is is the official launch date of PR for Humans, and thanks to all of those people who've kindly given their endorsements and support to the book, and we'll find out what wider audience thinks about it very, very soon. So here we are today, and I am thrilled that we have Kirsten Walcombe here in the studio with me. Kirsten, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. And you are, um, this is a very impressive title, Global Communications Director of Save the Children International. <laughs> yes, wow. <laughs> That's got to be one of one of the best jobs in communications, maybe. It certainly it, sounds like one of the best, yeah. but it's, it's you know, the, the, the reality is some, sometimes different to, to the impression. So... Mm-hmm. What, 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 what do you do? What is, what is the essence of this job? It's great. Thank you. No, it is a fantastic job. I'm absolutely privileged to have it. Um, so my team and I, we, are, we oversee the whole realm of gambit of communications for Save the Children International. So that is everything from internal, external strategic communications to public engagement, which also includes the digital within Save the Children International. We also do... Um, reputation issues, crisis management. We deal with some of the most complex and difficult issues, such as immigration and migration, um, issues of safety and security. We've done um, thought leadership events. We work with our executives, so our CEO straight through to our leadership team, sometimes on stages such as Davos at the World Economic Forum, the UN General Assembly, um, and really everything you could think of from a communication standpoint yeah, is I, under our gambit. Wow, which is it's great. an extraordinary um, suite of responsibilities, you know, global responsibilities and and extraordinarily, you know, challenging subjects and important work so um what, what an amazing amazing and how did you get to 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 be in this position what, what was your story to 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 getting this job and, yeah. and having these responsibilities that's great um so actually i previously was the head of media and communications for save the children in canada and prior to that i was with a global agency so i had kind of I like to say I grew up in an agency world working on corporate and consumer clients. I was always one of those individuals who would go above and beyond and do the pro bono work on top of if you were billing 80 hours a week, it didn't matter. There was still always something to do. And when I was at the global agency, actually Save the Children in Canada approached us about helping them pitch one of their programs for the World Economic Forum in Davos. That was my first kind of experience with Save the Children. From there, they asked me to apply to this role in Canada 
and then just became very connected with the global network. Um, I came over to our head office here in London about two years in and spoke with at the time the deputy CEO and ex- uh, expressed kind of the interest in moving forward with a global communications director role, which didn't exist at that time. And we were able to find really good opportunity that allowed me and my partner to relocate to London and to work with this team here, which has been an absolutely incredible experience. Fantastic. And how do you see the mission that you've got there? And what, what, what were you you know, hired to do in that role? And, and, and what do you see as your sort of big objectives? Yeah, absolutely. So Save the Children International has actually only been around for within the last 10 years. So it used to be that Save the Children and a lot of organizations like Oxfam Care, they would all be set up like this, where they would have different national offices in the operating countries. So there would be, say, this is a not accurate example, but there may be eight Save the Children's on one road in Nairobi, for instance. There would be a Save Canada, a Save Italy, a Save US, etc. So a couple, many years ago, about I think it's about seven now, the organizations looked at each other and said, okay, this is we could be a more effective and efficient organization for the children we serve if we come together and operate under one umbrella. And that actually brought forward Save the Children International. And with that, we now have communicators in all of the countries of where we work, as well as in regional offices, and then at the center. And they all fall within the global communications team, which I oversee. The issue with that is actually they were all set up in different fragmented ways. So actually, a lot of our communications representatives, maybe they are doing, they could be doing digital, they could be doing digital comms, media, PR, and admin work, they might be doing some campaigning. So basically, resources were really, really tight, and their scale and scope, and their focus was really, really wide. So one of the things that I'm very passionate about is what I'm calling establishing a global communications function. This is helping our country offices, our regional offices, and my team at the center to really look at what the organization is trying to achieve from its top organizational objectives, which is to ensure that all children survive, learn, and are protected from all forms of violence by 2030, straight down to what every country office is doing to help achieve that goal strategically. So communications is a strategic function. It is meant to help a client, to help a brand, to help an office achieve its organizational goals. But often, comms plans are done in isolation of the overarching strategic objectives. So therefore, they're not necessarily supporting them. So what we're doing, and the biggest kind of beast that we've had to tackle, or I really wanted to take on by coming over, is to establish this global comms function by giving my teams in the country the skills, the knowledge, and the opportunity to build plans and activations that would help support country office objectives that are then well positioned to help regional objectives, which will then allow us all to help our global objectives. And this is what you've seen in your work in, in, the, in, the, in the private sector, I guess, as well as, as, yeah. as some of the work in, in the humanitarian sector. And it's, it's, it's my, my firm belief as well that, you know, this stuff only works powerfully if there's you know support at the top of the organization and if the strategy if that's a business strategy or government strategy or whatever it is and the comms strategy are are, are entwined and, and and really built together absolutely and so so often and and my my big frustrations when when I worked um, in agency um, the things that didn't go so well were always where there was that disconnect between somehow the business strategy and what the CEO or the leadership or the C-suite wanted and the comms and and PR, in my view, never works very well when it's just a spray on or it's brought in to, 
to somehow sort of augment things or get yeah. a certain um, piece of coverage or piece of impression out there. It's it's strategic function, which is still you know many organisations still don't understand that that fundamental. Lesson. I couldn't agree more, and I think it's um, such a challenge for PR and communication specifically, somehow marketing and advertising almost got a seat at the table very, very early. And PR as a discipline is starting to re-educate and reposition itself to be seen as more of a strategic function. But there is still quite a far way to go. And as you say, it takes leadership understanding. I remember, gosh, this is dating myself, but I remember a client saying to me once, I want a Facebook page. And my response was, well, why? And mm-hmm. always trying to think of what is the strategic outcome you're trying to achieve? Who is the audience you're trying to influence, etc. And his response was, but everyone's on Facebook. There was no strategy. There was no idea. And I get it's important to be in the environments that maybe your audience is on, but he hadn't thought it through enough. And to me, that was kind of the epitome of an example of when comms is just seen as an afterthought yeah a bit i like to call the checkbox and we avoid it at all costs yeah no, it's, it's funny that i've actually only started to understand this stuff properly when i'm now that i'm running my own business uh yeah. you could know, give advice to clients you say oh you need to integrate you need to do this you need to do that but now i know that you know i need a podcast because i need to reach people in this pr industry i've written a book so that i can get my ideas out there um, it all has to kind of fit together with what I'm trying to achieve yep. you know, as, as a business, a tiny, tiny, tiny business, but a, but a business nevertheless. So um, it's it's one thing to give the advice, it's another thing to live it. And I guess, I guess you, you've seen that as well from you know, moving from the agency world into, into, the, into the in-house roles. Yes. And actually now that you are, you are a client, you can, you can understand maybe more easily how sometimes within organizations, you know, having the right idea and implementing the idea – are quite a long way apart. Absolutely. And I I actually kind of laugh about it. I have much better insight and perspective on the challenges my clients faced that I did when I was just agency. So I do remember, and I was more junior, but I do remember in agency life wondering what was taking the client so long to get back, or it's such a brilliant idea. Why aren't they just picking up on it? Um, Or from a reputation management or crisis uh, perspective, it was like, well, just make a decision. But actually, now that I'm internal, I really understand the realities of a client and actually understanding um, internal politics and how important buy-in is that idea of leadership that truly understands the importance of strategic communications, reputation management, problem solving, and then how much the client, the types of tools and products and information they need to be able to sell the agency's ideas internally in a very effective way that's going to move things forward so it's actually been a really awesome process and I'm thoroughly um yeah I feel that I've learned a lot from it and wouldn't change it actually of having that opportunity to get the internal perspective yeah and and let's just talk about reputation because you know it's it's what it it comes down to in 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 comms and and the PR world And and I guess in the humanitarian and charity sector we all know there's big problems in the world. We all know there's an incredible, unimaginable suffering and, 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 and tragedy. So I guess the challenge for you is, is you know, not so much convincing people of that, but convincing people perhaps that you, you can be trusted to help to alleviate it in some way. Is, is that how you see it, the reputational challenge? Or you know, what, what do you see as the biggest uh, objectives on, on reputation? No, I think that's an excellent question. So the humanitarian sector, for a very 
has really benefited from what I like to call the halo effect for a very long time. We were trusted by our publics to do good because literally our name was on the tin. We save children. You understand what our mission is, our value is. But over the last 10 years, you've seen more public scrutiny and um, interest of, well, what is it you actually do? And with that has come diminished levels of public trust. That's okay, because what it means is we now need to relook at our reputation and our different reputations with stakeholders and and work on managing those specifically. So I think from that perspective, there is one of the biggest challenges we have to deal with is, as you were saying, we don't have to convince people there are problems in the world because there's actually what I also call aid fatigue. And it's the conversation of we can't keep showing you the same images and the same kind of, in many ways, really challenging emotional stories without showing the impact that we're creating. Because then you start to get the narrative of, well, they actually aren't doing any work. The work on the field is absolutely phenomenal, but we have to make sure we're telling those stories in a very effective way and bringing them up to the publics who are starting to question the effectiveness of foreign aid, for instance. Yeah, and just just a a quick couple of anecdotes from my my time as a reporter. And the biggest natural disaster I went to to cover was the the Asian tsunami in in Mm. 2004. And it was it was a horrifying experience in 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 many ways. Partly because I'd been on honeymoon to the same location a year before, wow. and then and so on a personal level, it was it was very uh, affecting. But on, on the question, you know, several interesting things happened. Um, you know, due to the coverage on on in global media, ordinary people from the UK and all over the world just had flown out there under their own on their own um, bat and um, immersed themselves in the crisis, tried to find ways to help. And most of them were just sort of getting in the way, uh, which was, which was quite, quite um, strange and interesting to see. But the emotional power of television, the pictures, had, mm. had had an incredible impact on people. I remember there was one guy who literally arrived with a, with a, a briefcase full of money. Right? And, I, and he said, I want to give this money to the people here who, who, who are suffering. Um, could you advise me on how best to distribute this money? Wow. And I, and I said, look, I am, I am, I am a journalist. I, I have no idea what, what you should do with this money that, that, that could be in any way effective. And that, that did get me thinking you know, about, about aid and about the role of, of the news. And you know, we, we had a, a, an incredible ability to raise awareness of, of all the suffering and, and all the misery. But actually, I felt that day I was very poorly placed to understand what to do about it. And I, and I think, you know, from, from looking at looking at charities and, and, and humanitarian organizations and NGOs, that, I think, is, is a challenge. You've already alluded to it about, you know, how, how do you actually alleviate the suffering and more scrutiny and more transparency, I guess. And you, you feel that, do you? Absolutely. And I think um, the Asian tsunami is a really interesting turning point. There was that was actually on the back of that crisis. There was much more scrutiny and um challenging of where did the money go and how was it used and that was incredible because what it has done is it has shown organizations that they must be more accountable and more transparent about the impact they're actually delivering on the ground so this has been a challenge and it's something that uh, is slowly I think happening for organizations but there's still a lot of work to be done we need to improve the way the way we tell our stories to the right stakeholders that could be to your regulators it could be to government donors but it could be to gentlemen and the regular public that you talk about who was willing to show up with 
a briefcase full of money. He needs to understand actually how aid organizations work, the impact we deliver, to therefore feel like he can trust us to give us that money and then for that to be used and actually be able to do more impact and more good for children with it than he would be able to do himself. And, the, the you know, in the last couple of years, we have seen those those high-profile stories about Oxfam, about Save the Children, about certain individuals who have, let's let's say, haven't, haven't behaved to the highest possible standards. Um, how much of an effect has that had on... Um, donations, perception, reputation, and what are you trying to do to to reestablish the trust? Yeah, that's a great question. So public trust was already falling in public trust in NGOs over the last 10 years, as I mentioned. Um, but of course, any story, it's like for the tech sector, when you have issues of security breaches or um, data breaches, any sector that is hit with a scandal or a crisis, there is faster um, public trust or you lose public trust faster. Um, I believe very strongly to never waste a good moment and a good opportunity like that. This has been a really good opportunity for us to recognize and openly say the standards we expect and demand from our staff. Um, from a Save the Children international perspective, our CEO, Hella Torning-Schmidt, who is the former pres- uh former Prime Minister of Denmark, has been very open about the commitments we will make to protecting the dignity and the safety of our staff moving forward. But as part of that, we need to start having a very public and honest conversation with our general public. So whether that is through enhanced reporting, whether that is such as um, an annual review or a global accountability report, whether it is through conversations like this. It's okay for us to realize that there has been a problem, but it's not okay for us not to do anything about it. So luckily, I feel very confident that Save the Children is acting on what has happened and is making all of the necessary steps to ensure it never happens again. But we are definitely in the moment where we do need to rebuild public trust. and, um, And it's time. Which is exciting, and that's you know that's when we go back to the mission and the motivation. It's that's a big one for you as well, yes. I guess, coming in and, and doing that job. But it it is hard, um, you know, because you know people working for for Save the Children and, and other uh, aid organisations are working in very difficult, very dangerous environments, often very lawless environments, and uh, you know not to make any excuses for bad behaviour, but there are tremendous you know psychological pressures associated with working uh, in the field which um you know do put great pressure on, on individuals but at the same time i guess your message to them has got to be you know wherever you are in the world whatever conditions you're working in whatever the situation you find yourself in um there are standards of behavior that we have to maintain and and that we have to uh, you know our our duty is to the people that we that we serve and that we're trying to help. Absolutely. And I think our message is very strong to our staff that we have a very strong code of conduct and we have expectations of behaviours that must be followed at all costs and we won't accept anyone who breaches those standards. Uh, Humanitarian organisations are interesting in comparison to corporates as we have different reputations with multiple different stakeholders. So there's more to manage. Um, And one of the main... audiences that we have to manage and people don't often think about from a reputation perspective are the people we serve and the communities that we work with. If we're not trusted by those children or the communities we work with, what good are we? We actually won't be able to ensure more children are get access to a quality education. The community won't let us in to deliver humanitarian aid. So our trust at the field level absolutely becomes paramount and 
it is issues like that that could shake that public trust. We've been very lucky that it hasn't um, from what we've seen so far, but we just would never want to put ourselves in a situation where it could. Mm. And so in terms of the the storytelling, I mean, it's it's interesting you've got these you know multiple reputations that need to be sort of thought of and considered in in, in different ways both internally and externally do, do you then do you then fall back on a on a central narrative or a story that is at the heart of what you do or or is it too complex and global to be simplified to to a single story it's a bit of both um so we do have kind of a one narrative that talks about who saved the children is from an ethos and from the kind of top line macro scale but then also there are stories that need to be told of all the different types of programming we do um at the at the field level, at the regional level, and then at the global level. And then depending on what campaigns we would be running, we've actually just launched um, a, conf- a conflict campaign. So we have now learned that um, one of the groups of children who isn't seen or benefiting from the progress that uh, the progress that has been made from the Millennium Development Goals are children who are affected by conflict, which is actually one in five children are affected by conflict now. So we have just launched a campaign called Stop the War on Children, and it will look at storytelling of those who have been impacted by conflict either in where they live or by having to be displaced by conflict sometimes they are injured or harmed or have seen families killed so it's kind of um we do our storytelling depending on again what we're trying to achieve with each different moment in each country in each region each program etc but are we are we moving to um, a more um I don't want to say sophisticated, but a, a more complex form of storytelling where, you know, in the past we might have thought humanitarian charity storytelling was all about just the very tight focus on on the suffering of the of the individual or the family to, you know, tug at the heartstrings, get an emotional response, ultimately get people to, you know, reach into their wallets and, and, and give some money. Is that sort of overriding goal of, you know, finding the human story and telling it as powerfully as possible Is that changing in any way, do you think? Absolutely. So that goes back to the idea of the halo effect. So in today's narrative storytelling and even reputation management, we can't just rely on the stories about we're doing good and therefore you're immediately going to trust us. We actually have to show you stories of impact, stories of hope, stories of opportunity and progress. And there are millions of them. Um, In 2017, Save the Children reached nearly 50 million children with our programs those are the stories that actually help compel a more modern audience and we look literally at what stories are compelling to each audience and how do we tell them in a more effective way some audiences do still want to make sure that they feel connected to the stories of um, they want the realities of what is going on the ground and unfortunately sometimes those stories are of suffering and they're horrifying and they truly tear at your heart but we can also tell the stories of the difference we can make if we all work together. And are those stories, that, I mean, because we've seen so much of it in, in, in different forms in the media in, in, in recent decades, I mean, we, we hear a lot about compassion fatigue and that these problems are sort of so big that actually that method of communicating by focusing on, on suffering just, just isn't, is not effective anymore in the way that as you say the stories of of hope and you know positive solutions and real impact are more persuasive now to to an audience out there who who want to feel that they can actually do something to help change things not just you know 
uh, feel guilty and feel like they've got to in some way um, give something because it's so blimmin' awful. Yeah. Audiences are motivated by different things. So I think in many ways you are seeing more modern storytelling of that of those who do feel the compassion fatigue. They do feel that it they want to be part of a solution and not part of a problem. So we are certainly moving towards that type of storytelling. It also is we're very, very focused on maintaining the dignity of the people's stories that we're telling. So those are stories of hope. Those are stories that are meant to empower the individual stories who we're, we're actually telling. Um, stories of suffering, unfortunately, in the world we're in, do still need to be told. And we do have to give that context of what is, what are people fleeing from? Extreme conflicts, violence, economic poverty. And that can then tell you, on the other hand, the life and opportunities they can have with the right interventions. Mm. I, I, there's a story I, I tell in, in, in the book, which is, is um, in Baghdad, where I interviewed two boys who were victims of suicide bombing um, and their parents, both their parents were, were killed. Both these boys had both their parents killed in this, this attack so they were both orphaned. And um, we did an interview with these boys to try and illustrate the psychological consequences of the war. And this younger boy, I wasn't going to include him in the piece because he didn't actually say anything. I think he was too traumatized to, to speak. Um, but there were some close-up shots of his, his eyes that were very haunting and his, his hands that were shaking. And that sort of told a very, very powerful story. And we did the story, and I got loads of kind of praise from the editors in London, the plaudits were, this is a fantastic story, blah, blah, amazing piece. But the more I've thought about it over the years, the more I've questioned, you know, what good we did <laughs> to that boy or to anyone uh, who'd been suffering in that conflict simply by focusing on um, on them and the, the cost to them. And I, I feel a little bit, a little bit guilty about the role of you know, I think journalism can play a very useful role at times, but at times I think it, it, it can play a negative role as well by like giving people the sense of, of incredible problems but without the sense of what the solution could be. So I just well my question to you now is about the role of, of the media around the world and 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 journalists in particular and, and when do you feel that great coverage of something that's going on, whether it's Syria or the migration crisis, when, when is that helpful and when is it not helpful to the work that you're, you're trying to do? Mm-hmm. I think it's extremely helpful. So much of the world still relies on the media as the main source to get information and to feel that that information can be trusted. So if we look at Syria, um, gosh, Syria has been raging on for, I believe we're coming up to the eighth anniversary, which is mm. unbelievable. And I was in Canada when it first broke out, and it was kind of the thing that was happening somewhere else. And it took a tremendous amount of media coverage and really compelling, heart-wrenching content to make it feel closer to home for audiences. And without that public awareness, they won't demand action. They won't demand any improvement. Um, Another opportunity, another one that's a really good example is South Sudan. So there's been conflict in South Sudan off and on for absolutely for years or DRC. And it's kind of what we call a forgotten crisis where we're constantly trying to urge the media to remember the um, what is going on in that context, to remember the children who are being victims of a conflict that they did nothing to create. And how do you bring those stories to the forefront? So 
I absolutely feel that the role of media is critical in helping us to tell those stories. We wouldn't be able to break through the noise that the that the general public deals with every day, whether it is on Instagram or on um on the news, on radio, without their help and without their partnership. So it still is such a huge and authentic, incredible authority in helping us to tell those stories that actually I think the humanitarian sector relies on the media so much as a partnership. It's fantastic. Yeah, and and, and it's incredibly powerful. But what about when the media kind of goes away? And one of the things that was always striking was you know the the media you know you pile in and you get a few weeks out of a story if it's a big big story and then the media pulls out very very suddenly uh does does that cause you know cause any kind of problems for you do you do you feel that um these sort of waves of media excitement make it make the communications challenge you know more interesting but more complicated because presumably when the media pull out often often the problems are only just getting getting going uh, yeah. in terms of actually the reality on the ground it's made it interesting and because what we have to do is learn the patterns and learn the trends and operate within that landscape so the humanitarian sector like all sectors are in a very shifting landscape with the immersion of being a more interconnected world so if the media is there for 72 hours how do we f- focus and make sure we get as much how do we capitalize on that opportunity in the first 72 hours? Then what is our plan in place for the next weeks to come to make sure we don't lose share of voice or opportunity to speak to the public about what is still going on? That could mean really starting to re- um, rely on social media. How do we tell stories to different audiences through Instagram, through Facebook, etc.? How do we then keep hammering on with the media that the story isn't over, that we keep working with traditional media to push that forward, which is something that we always do. And we look at stakeholder engagement. So if the media have left, that means the general public interest may wane. But actually, can we start to really negotiate with global governments and talking about what change needs to happen and the impact we're already seeing? Mm. And when, you, when you're, you're trying to sustain interest in, in, a, in a story and in, in your activities, it's, it's quite striking to me how these the lines have become somewhat blurred between you know, um, earned media and paid media and and shared media and 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 certainly some of the advice that that I get from some uh, consultants in the industry is is actually to to keep a strong footprint and presence online. You've got to pay. I mean, I wonder for you whether whether that is a is a big part of what you do. You know, like paid support for your like social media posts or for any other content that you're producing. And and in a charity world, I guess that would be sort of hard just to justify but is it important do you do it how much do you do it it ranges from a save the children international perspective mm. um in some countries they do post and they would do they promote posts um from the center-based team here in london we actually don't um we've worked very very hard to start getting really strong organic storytelling and i think it really depends also with the changes of algorithms so frequent it's incredibly important to stay ahead of those challenges and those trends and to be very honest within your internal teams to talk about what will this change mean to us and the type of content we are creating. Um, so at the moment, we don't do promote a post, but I know from my friends in the private sector, everything's promoted. So it really depends. It just um, isn't always available with our limited budgets. Yeah, yeah, no, sure. And what what, what works well in terms of content then, in terms of when, you, when you're thinking about about what to post or what to what to share what 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 do you find gets a really strong reaction empowering stories mm-hmm. especially stories actually told by the children that we have had the opportunity to work with or to help their own voices 
having them be their own advocate is incredibly powerful and it really works on different social channels, specifically on Instagram. And people want to hear from the children that we work with and they want to hear about what is happening. It helps them understand and bring the issues closer to them, but in a way that makes them see there is a solution and that actually children have the agenda to be their own um, change makers, which mm. is absolutely incredible. Just talk about the, the world of, 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 of PR and, and charity. I mean, you, you know, you've come from a PR agency background, and I think there'll be a lot of people in in agencies, and I, I guess I've had these thoughts myself from time to time, you know, shouldn't I be doing something more worthwhile? Mm-hmm. Uh, shouldn't I be working for something which has a, a, a positive impact on on the world? How, how do you get into to charity comms? Um, and what advice would you have for anyone who, who maybe is in in the corporate or private sector and thinks, actually, there's there's something more valuable I could, could be doing with my time? What, what would you say to them? So that's a great question because I know I definitely struggled with that. And that's how I always ended up doing the pro bono work on top of the 80-hour billable week. Um, twofold, actually. So if we start looking at the evolution of brands and shared values – Brands have to operate with a purpose today. So actually, I do think that the role of PR and those inside agencies don't actually need to flee to be able to give back in that essence, but they actually do have a really huge responsibility and opportunity within the clients they work with to help them shape their shared values or corporate social responsibility or whatever their brands may call that those programs in a way that's offering meaningful impact and purpose and isn't superficial. So there's a huge opportunity to scope and influence that. Secondly, if people are interested in charity comps, get in touch. Um, I think organizations like Save the Children, my team, I know colleagues and peers and other organizations are always willing to have introduction conversations. That was really important for me. I didn't quite understand what would it be like to work inside a charity. I had definitely some perceptions um, that some were true some turned out not to be true and that's that's great so I would say recommend get in touch Um, volunteer work is always a really good way to get a sense of is this right for me isn't this right for me Um, and really it's kind of like pursuing any new job it is a business and it is a job so you have to make sure that your view of it isn't so idealistic that you forget that it's actually work it's incredible work it's very very meaningful work but it is still a job that's really interesting so so you have to be <laughs> highly highly professional you know c- come in with a with a business hat on really yeah you know whatever your motivation if you if you come in two kind of rose-tinted spectacles we're gonna save the world and it's all gonna be I mean, first of all, it's not easy. I, I get it very hard and, I, and, and and competitive work as well, I guess. And to, to succeed at it, um, you have to be just as good, probably better than, than many people operating in, in the supposedly cutthroat world of the, the private sector. I think it's, um, it's a, to that point, it is, um, it is, comms jobs, there are few and far between. It within uh, the humanitarian sector because we do operate with slim, slimly resourced teams and budgets. So it is competitive sector. Um, the biggest thing and the coolest thing, I think, with humanitarian roles is actually, as I mentioned at the beginning, our scale and scope is huge. So from an agency side, I was really lucky I was able to get my hands in and operate on consumer clients, corporate clients, reputation management clients. It was wonderful. Um, but from a humanitarian perspective, I have worked on some of the biggest global issues that I could have ever foreseen. And I've had the opportunity to 
see and meet people from around the world to work in different cultures to truly understand the global affairs landscape from from an from a perspective I just didn't actually see comms ever having had. So I think from a humanitarian world, it's really interesting of how much more, if you are willing and have the right attitude, how much you can actually dive into and really grab onto. I can teach you skills. I can't teach you attitude. So a big thing about surviving in this world is having the right attitude to want to make change and to want to dive in and to want to do more. Great. Well, look, th- thanks so much for, for coming on the show, um, Kirsten. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Um, any, any final tips from you for people who um, are maybe trying to you know, forge their way in the, in the PR and comms world? You know, maybe they're graduates, maybe they're, you know, they're just trying to find out what's right for them. Um, what, what, what would you, looking back on your career, what would you tell your, yourself of um, you know, a few years ago is trying to you know, find their path and find their way? Any, any other kind of nuggets of advice? Yeah, um, I really suffer from imposter syndrome. So that is, it has held me back at certain times, but actually identifying it has been really, really helpful for me. So getting a mentor and challenging myself to do things like this that don't necessarily, um, they don't make me feel comfortable, for instance, yeah. but I know how important they are because it's also the advice I would give my clients. Take risks. If it feels right, trust your gut and leap in and do it. Um, There are definitely moments where I should have leaped in faster. um, But then there are moments where I didn't leap in because my gut told me not to and it turned out to be the right choice. Also, just keep going. I know that um, it is a very competitive market out there right now. I have lots of friends, family who have just graduated and there aren't a lot of roles to go for. But I think with the right attitude, with the right hustle, that people will find the right roles and they'll add value tremendously quickly and therefore um, be able to move up. Yeah, now that's that's fantastic advice, and I I really like the the point about not asking your clients to do things that you wouldn't do yourself, which yeah. I think is a really important one, and it's one I've heard a couple of times. Actually, I've heard it once on this show before, but but from other people as well. But often it's not said in in PR and comms, and, and I think that's that's a shame. I, I think the days when when the comms people could just operate in the shadows, uh, you know, pull the strings and, yeah. and, and not actually get out there in any way are, 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 are prob- probably over. And um, I just, I love it when people who are in communications actually want to come and communicate, <laughs> you know, which yeah. is it's not always, not always the case. So thank you so much for, for being a fabulous guest and, and coming on, on, on the, the show. Um, best of luck with all, all of your activities in this very exciting and and really important work so thanks again thank you so much for having me it was wonderful and so we reach the end of another episode of pr for humans i do hope you've enjoyed the show please share the ideas and the knowledge visit prforhumans.com or sergeantleaders.com for more information about me and my work I provide media training, public speaking training, leadership coaching and PR strategy for amazing clients all over the world. Perhaps we can work together someday. Either way, I wish you luck. Share this podcast, share your stories, share your knowledge. Stay human and stay curious.